Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavyhops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. Most of my stuff is like, you know, I'm sitting on it for, for months. It's, it's mostly long form stuff. It's mostly with a narrative structure. That also helps me explain to people why they should tell me certain things and talk to me in a certain way. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name's Alexi. I'm flying solo this week with Belgium-based beer writer Brendan Kearney. I first encountered Brendan's work during my time at Local Option Beer Bar in Chicago. I carried on a tradition of showcasing small breweries with an artisanal approach from around the world, giving them a draft platform in one of the best beer cities. Importers such as Shelton Brothers, Be United, and 12% Imports allowed me incredible access to brewers who, informed by fresh perspectives, were excited to break with tradition in their own country's beer culture by exploring new and exciting flavor profiles. In autumn 2016, a distribution rep mentioned they had received a shipment of beers from Browery Verzet, making the pitch I should check out their feature in Good Beer Hunting in lieu of not being able to offer samples. Look it up online isn't normally sales guidance a buyer responds well to, but because I have a soft spot for Belgian and European artisanal producers, I obliged. Brendan's long-form profile of the new Flemish brewery was interesting because it addressed a number of topics in Belgian beer from the perspective of a non-native looking in. It was the first time Brendan had sold me a keg. In the conversation that follows, we discuss how Brendan ended up leaving Ireland for Belgium, carrying with him only a bag and his guitar. We enjoy beers and share stories, discuss themes in his storytelling, and reflect on the impact the localization movement of the last decade and COVID-19 have had on Belgian breweries. I learned that Brendan is not only highly interested in the beverage and gourmand industries in Belgium, but that those topics give him a lens through which he can better understand the place he lives. We pick up as the first bottles are opened, and we dive and get heavy in the world of spontaneously fermented beers. Let's shall, shall we crack? Can I crack open a beer? To let's do it. Absolutely. Facilitate yeah. my. Um... Let's facilitate <laughs> the conversation with uh, liquid <laughs> confidence here. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm going to start with this one. Oh because, yeah, let's uh, do it. Let's just because was, uh, uh, yeah. I think it's like a you know like a um, some acid for aperitif. Perfect, I love it. I think um, one of the first beer dinners I went to uh, was in Copenhagen before the uh, the beer celebration there that Yepa and his uh, import partner Hendrik put on, and I think Goose was or it was actually. Uh, it was like, I think, a straight Lambic from Dree Fontaine, and it was the first time I had had anything like acidic in that way at the beginning of a meal because it was typically something I would allow my palate to get wrecked by later. But it was a, it was totally amazing to experience it that way. Yeah, no, I, I, I often do like have a, have a bottle of Husa before dinner, um, and I think it's a good one to start with because it's like, you know, crisp, like a champagne before dinner, it's, uh, you know, it, and also why, why save up the, the best stuff for the end when your palate is more tired, drink it first. 
That's a great point. Yeah. Treat yourself. Just go for the go for the good straight away. Why uh why did you choose uh black label uh to share? Yeah, so like I mean I have a I, like I, I, there's a whole spectrum of of flavor across all the lambic producers and you know you kind of get to know their personalities the more you you know drink across the, the different breweries so you know you have the kind of the, the 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 softer stuff like you would expect from bone um which is kind of you know still has that lemony lactic quality but it's kind of more moderate acidity and very accessible now he bone also has more sophisticated Hughes's, uh, but you know, generally speaking, his his straight out of Hughes would be more accessible. And then, of course, you go, you know, on the other extreme, you're going to have something like Hansen's, which is you know really putting the farmhouse into uh, that that style of beer, and you know, kind of maybe more acidic, maybe more bread heavy. Um, and then somewhere in the middle, where you have still a lot of fruit character, but like then something like Drifontainen, which is kind of has really interesting flavor profiles, but also is still, you know, soft and kind of rounded. But Girardin is, um, it's kind of, I would say it's like an unsung kind of hero because the quality is so high. And it's also, um, it's one of the preferred um, lambics for people to blend with because it's it's quite, it's quite easy to, you know, if, if you're looking for a blend, you know, you might put Cantillon in for the character, you know, in a small proportion and like to have a bit of fucking edge there and to, you know, to, to give it, but, but you'll want to have something as your backbone, something in the middle. And like so many of the blenders choose Girardin um, for that, like, and Daranka as well are using Girardin for their blends, for, for their, their mixed fermentation stuff. Um, you know, so it's like solid, reliable, quality is always high. The, the brewery itself is fairly interesting because Girardin, they're, they're, I wouldn't say they're secretive, but they're certainly not as open maybe as some of the others are to, to chatting about things. Um, yeah, so it's just a solid, beautiful old Hughes with a, a really classic label, which I also like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's interesting. And when uh, in my experience of traveling in Europe as well, it's typically at a lower price point than some of the and some of the other ones that that you've mentioned as well and i think that 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 positioning as well kind of allows it for more accessibility which is phenomenal unfortunately here it's a little bit different and i was kind of um i was surprised that it was positioned more in the same price point of the other ones that you had mentioned which i guess makes sense when you're talking about uh an artisanal product um of the same uh, of the same distinction. Uh, but I think that there is a lot of value to uh, putting something at a lower price point so that people feel less intimidated by it, especially these days with uh, with imported beer when there's, you know, domestic made examples of uh, spontaneously fermented beers and things like that. But the the barrier for people to buy something from abroad may challenge their uh their purchase in some way because they may want to support st- from something nearby absolutely yeah absolutely I mean, i'm not sure like how expensive kind of they land in the states um but i do know that you know certain brands that would have perhaps more inverted commas hype surrounding them um you know the, the breweries are kind of can be quite upset about um, you know, how, how much they're fetching on the black market and the fact that people are hoarding them rather than drinking them. And, you know, that happens with certain brands more than others, of course. 
Um, but, you know, also part of the charm of Girardin, I guess, is that it's kind of not as hyped as some of them. And yet still it's it's wonderful. So, um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're all interesting and wonderful in their own way. But but uh, Girardin is one that I like to drink. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, on, I was speaking with the retailer that that brought that I was able to get this from. And they said it was only 10 cases this year for Chicago. So hopefully... Uh, Hopefully more people try it out because it's absolutely uh, a phenomenal, phenomenal beer and something that no one, no one in Chicago is making anything remotely like. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask, um, like, do you have many uh, brewers or blenders in Chicago, like dabbling in like spontaneous fermentation? I'm sure there are uh, quite a few doing mixed, but do you have anybody with with the cool ship that's kind of um, inoculating and not pitching? Yeah, you have uh, at least one that I'm aware of that's doing spontaneous with a cool ship, uh, open fermentation uh, for all their beers as well, and that's uh, Dovetail. Um, they had uh, two, the two, uh, two of the owners and operators went through the whole like Dolman's uh, Seabull Academy circuit, and uh, they do everything. Uh, through a cool ship and everything in open fermentation. Um, but yes, they also do spontaneous fermentation. Uh, and so they have a number of releases that they put out that are that are done in that manner. A ton of people are doing mixed fermentation mm, yeah. um, as well. And then there are breweries that will dabble with spontaneous, but they'll typically use it as like a blending component um, mm-hmm. because their yeah. yield may be very small or it's uh, time sensitive in the wood for them and they don't want to commit that much uh, product to wood when they could be moving other things through quicker. Absolutely, yeah. Well, that's that's the thing about Lambic or Lambic inspired is like it's, um, it's really a long haul kind of, um, you know, thing that you have to take on and there's so much statistics and management and dealing with the act, the, the tax authorities, and you have to wait for a long time to see if blends work out. And generally, it's a smaller quantities you're dealing in, so it's you know it's it's a that's why it's kind of niche, and I guess why you know it's not as easy as maybe pivoting to hazies or hard seltzer, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. There the, bar- is a- the market is the market is a lot smaller too. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, definitely, and I think that the time is a big is a big issue for producers if you look at uh the styles that are most popular they are styles that people are pushing to put out quicker and even uh experimentation with kvike yeast i think is actually something people are using as a way to push fermentation to go quicker and so that's completely contrary to the living that it takes of making these uh, these goose and spontaneous beers because you have to live at the pace of the beverage instead of like you dictating that to yeah. the beer and the 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 pace of those operations is totally different and you can sense that like right when you walk into a brewery that uh, has chosen that way of doing things uh, as opposed to someone that is very stressed about return on investment and they're running around their cellar thinking, okay, we're going to put this, this 
uh, you know, this size fermenter here, this thing here, and they've run all the numbers on how long it'll take for them to recoup that investment. And um, yeah, you can, you can taste that. It comes through in the beverage in both cases. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, that's p- part of the reason that um, a lot of the, the kind of Lambic breweries, the, I, I don't know if you know the, the, the term Horal, it's like the kind of the, the membership uh, organization member member or the member breweries of the of the Lambic community, and um, I think part of their frustration is that, um, you know, there are people making what the what they're claiming are Lambic inspired or Hughes style beers, and um, they have you know invested so much of their lives in doing this in a particular way, and if other people don't invest that same time the beer might be of a different quality and reflect badly on the beers that they're making and spending, you know, this, you know, risking all this time and, and this investment and, you know, the, the kind of the reputation that they have. Um, now, that's not to say that there aren't producers in other countries who are, are make, or, you know, can't make wonderful spontaneous fermented beers. That's kind of been proven not to be true at all. And I think the Belgians now kind of have been seen as, you know, a little bit commercially protective and, you know, over the top in some of the language they've used to kind of disparage those producers. Um, but that's kind of just out of fear, I think, of of what it might do to their own market in such a, a niche, you know, niche beer. Um, so it's kind of, it plays both ways, you know, and, and I think there's a kind of a, a maturing understanding now among the Belgians that this is something that that the world can do, but maybe we can just continue to keep doing it as as the best type thing, you know? Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's an interesting dynamic to, um, to put into this discussion because I think how the discussion of uh, Horal is framed for an American audience is more on the terroir uh, discussion as opposed to the time involved. I think that the producers of spontaneously fermented beers for the most part in the U.S., understand that aspect of it by virtue of um, for many of like the early people doing it in the US, they had already been in business for a long time and they hadn't maybe gone into it in the first place with the idea that that was what they were going to do. It was maybe someone like Allagash that started with a, in that ballpark and then they decided, okay, we're going to give this a whirl, uh, which is different from someone just starting and then putting a cool ship in. Um, but there are producers that have left Toral recently and there's a little bit of a, there's oh, different. The, the, the politics of Lambic are wonderful. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, how do you feel about people uh, coming and going in Horal? And is that reflective of any shifts that, uh, that may be occurring in the future? Well, the, the whole landscape of Belgian beer is, you know, incredibly political. Um, that is, you know, and, and, and that happens in a very small geographical territory compared to what you're used to dealing with in America. But it's obviously because of the way the country has been historically divided and sort of the different cultural impacts that have been brought, you know, from, you know, from, from other lands and over time. And, you know, so you have like the, you know, the Belgian family brewers who are a group of like say 20 or 21 family brewers who have been going for a certain period of time continuously who are, you know, all over the country, but have this common you know, bond, and then you have the, the um, you know, the guys that are producing saison in Hino and uh, who are trying to fight for some sort of a description which will help them protect their heritage, and then you've got um, 
like a kind of a, also a dispersed but quite tight community of like smaller independent let's call them new wave rather than inverted commas craft because i think using that term can be problematic in belgium for for a number of reasons um and then you have of course the um the the belgian brewers federation which is a large organization and then you have the guys who are in southwest flanders producing old brown so you know roden back father hence the, the the four or five breweries there and then you have the Lambic guys. So there's this whole like, you know, and they all connect at different points and at different festivals and in different markets. Um, and I mean, the Lambic guys are probably the most like um, hardcore in terms of their their stance because it's kind of their most romantic beer with the most at stake in terms of something happening to it because it's been around for so long and it's so difficult to produce. So I think that from my point of view, I'm watching it with more more with interest and with judgment, you know, I would like to be reporting on it and trying to analyze it for people that are interested in it by speaking to the players involved and identifying patterns. So, you know, there's a whole, you know, there's a whole thing about relationships in there, but there's also about value. So like, I think when you're talking about people leaving Horal, one of them was uh, Drifontena recently. Um, you also have the CAM who, I'm not sure if they've officially left, but um, you know, sort of very much in, in bed with Drifontaine in terms of what they believe about, about Lambic. And, you know, those conversations are also about like technical issues such as uh, kegging uh, Husa. Like those guys don't believe that you can have Husa on draft, that part of the the whole cultural thing that surrounds the beer is that it's from a 75 CL or a 35, 37.5 CL thick glass green bottle that has gone through a six month re-fermentation, which creates a different product that you would get from on draft and to, to apply those labels in a different way. Like Cantillon sits outside um, Horal because he doesn't want to get into bed with breweries such as Lindemans who have, you know, um, used process techniques that they don't agree with, but they have used themselves in the past as well. Um, you know, and then there's, you've got this kind of a younger generation coming through now with with Gadel Bone, who's taken leadership roles, Tilkan, who's one of the only the the only Walloon blender involved, actually sits out the geographic, you know, uh, borders of the Pajotalan and Sena Valley, but is still a part of Horal, you know, sort of blowing a hole in their argument about um, it can only happen within this region, and you know, the Britannomyces is a very specific strain which can be found here and that gives us our identity. So, you know, you've got all this stuff going on and it's just fascinating and, and things will happen again. And um, yeah, but it's not, these aren't people getting in to make money. The people that are in Horal are people that have been doing it all their lives with their families and, um, you know, they're just trying to find a way to protect their own little space in there. So uh, that's kind of, you know, I don't know if that makes any sense, what I said, but it's kind of a whole political quagmire. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, a lot of people with a lot of different interests and, you know, their passion comes from, in some cases, a different source than someone that has just started a business and is trying to grow at a certain uh, trajectory. When you're contending with things like uh, family and, uh, you know, how am I going to pass this business on to someone uh, in, in within my family? Or if there isn't that, how am I going to pass this on in some way? And I mean, those are very legitimate concerns when you're, especially when you're dealing with a product that 
is historically steeped and is very, very tied to uh, to a region and also to like the culture of beer in Belgium internally and how it's viewed externally. So there's, I I would almost imagine like a certain pressure felt on that those people have to preserve that too. Yeah, sure. And it's a high pressure kind of um, beer to produce because you can invest two years in something and it turns out shit and then you have to start again, you know? (laughs) And like the, the healthy thing about Lambic right now though, I think is that there's high quality new entrants into the market. So like there's a couple of new, um, Den Hedeberg, I don't know if you've heard of those guys, but they're like a family who have a, a pub and have worked in other breweries and have their own Lambic now. I think they're just starting to make their own Eau de Cusa. Um, you have uh, Elsenbosch, which are a new Lambic brewery on the scene. Lambic Fabrique opened two, two years ago, I think, and are making really, really good Eau de Cusa. So, you know, the, the way that they're doing it is, is, is proper and excellent. And I think that's, you know, hopeful. And of course you have people then outside of that group, outside of that Piotrland area, like Antidote in Kortenaken. And I'm sure you've heard of Raf Souffrance from Boca. So, you know, those guys are, are brewing and blending, you know, very much, you know, in the same spirit of a lot of the Lambic guys and, and, and Boca, you know, Raf is, is also using Lambic to blend uh, outside of the Piotrland. And those guys are both respectful to the tradition of it, but they're kind of doing their own thing. So there, there's a whole bunch of stuff happening that I think is quite, you know, is positive and, and I think it's it's in a healthy place right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely, certainly more so than the than the '80s or the early '90s. Mm. Oh, absolutely, and and the quality wise too, which is important. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, was uh, for you and for your kind of like entrance into Belgian beer, um, how did you kind of find Belgian beer? Uh, have you, is it something you've been interested in a long, t- in, a, in a long time or um, had you kind of lived lives before Belgian beer came to you? Oh, I had lived lives. Um, I don't know how interesting those lives would be to other people, but I, I was, um, I discovered Belgian beer when I came to Belgium, which was in 2013. So I discovered beer when I came to Belgium. Before that, um, I I was a lawyer in Ireland and, you know, I had grown up drinking pints of Guinness. Um, you know, I was intru- introduced to it by my father. Uh, my, fr- my friends all drank Guinness. And the only other beers that were available really, you know, in, in kind of a mass pub setting um, are, were, were kind of European Lagers, Carlsberg, Heineken, that type of thing. So, you know, the, the, the inverted commas craft beer revolution in Ireland had, had also not begun. It was just starting to kind of get interesting when I left. So I was never exposed to it. So when I moved to Belgium, I kind of encountered Belgian beer and beer for the first time. And it was completely different to, you know, the experience that I had had with beer, but, you know, growing up before that. So, um, yeah, it was a very um, explosive experience, if you know what I mean, because within a short period of time, I, I, had, I had had all these new beer experiences and that kind of sparked my fascination. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it is definitely when you experience something like that. And I can't even imagine to actually live in, live in that world uh, as well. I would 
just kind of want to be getting into a car every weekend and going to, <laughs> going somewhere else to try new things. Um, was your interest in beer also kind of followed up with like gourmand interests, like in the cheese and the other kind of culinary features that like uh, tie into the beer culture as well? Yeah, I think um, for me, a lot of it was like, I, I, had, I met my now wife in Peru. This is kind of a, a roundabout answer, sorry. <laughs> and um, she, she was volunteering on this kind of, uh, this organization, which um, was there to rebuild a city which had been hit by a massive earthquake. There was an earthquake in, this, in the city of Pisco, in Peru and I was traveling across South America and I saw that I could stop in, volunteer for a few weeks, get some board and some food, meet up with some people and, you know, you know, contribute or to, to this kind of organization. So she was there with, with, with a friend of hers and I was kind of on my own. I had taken a break from, from being a lawyer. And then of course we met there and we then just kept in touch over the next year or two. I moved back to Ireland. And we kind of visited each other, but it came to the point where, you know, we were going to make a decision. So I moved to Belgium. And when I moved to Belgium, I didn't particularly want to move to Belgium. I liked Ireland. I still, I still do. And I didn't know anything about Belgium. I didn't know what people were talking about because there was three official languages, none of which were English. And unlike a lot of like the Irish or, you know, other, other people that had moved to Belgium, they were moving in like, institution circles, so European Commission, Council, um, there was a whole community of, of these people, you know, operating together. And I was, you know, I wasn't in Brussels, I was in a different part of Flanders. So I, I guess I was, it, it, I think it was me reaching out for something that would help me understand this new place that I was. And I immediately latched on to beer because it was just touching every part of Belgian society and every like, you know, societal touchstone, cuisine, religion, war, family, uh, science and engineering, you know, everything, there was something to do with beer. And, you know, you had all these incredible stories, like there were, there were, there were monks that were responsible for brewing beer. There was people, you know, uh, putting beer in large fats and letting wild yeast and, you know, ferment it. And there was you know, beers of 12, 13% alcohol and, you know, there was beers with like flavors that I couldn't even describe at the time. So I was like, okay, it was a part of me figuring out Belgium. And in a, I think in a large way, the whole Belgian Smack project and a lot of the writing I do for other publications is me still trying to figure out the place that I now live. And that's why I think there's a lot of focus in my stories, not just on the beers, but on the people and on the, you know, the cultural elements of the story you know, that's kind of me rooting around trying to work out what's going on, you know, in, in private, but this is how, it, you know, it ends up in public. So, um, and I think the food thing that you're talking about with like the, you know, the cuisine and the, the, the culinary culture, that is just an extension of me trying to work out what, you know, why is it different here? Why is the food culture here so different to Ireland? What are the similarities? What are the values that we share? What are the things that I don't understand that I think I could help others, you know, explain to other people that maybe also don't understand it. Um, yeah, so that's kind of, that's a, it's a long answer, but that's, it's, it's, and, it's a, and my connection with beer is just me trying to figure out, um, you know, what the hell Belgium is doing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
Um, I love that answer. I, I, I think that moving somewhere for love is, uh, is, is a very, it's a bold thing to do. And to latch on to something and use it as like your lens to kind of get that culture uh, is a, a great way to, uh, to approach it. How would you grade yourself as far as the linguistic challenges? I, I, I'd be pretty harsh on myself. No, I, I, I studied for a while when I came here. So I went to classes and I had a little bit of French from school. Um, but I'm living in a, in a part of Belgium where they don't speak French as the first language. Um, but when I went to classes, I kind of, I beat myself up a little bit at the start. I, I, you know, I'm a person who you can probably tell I like to talk. I, I like to be around people. I like to understand the nuance of conversations. And that was all completely lost when I was in a group of people because everything became transactional, like ordering bread at a bakery. And when I was in an environment where I was surrounded by people laughing and joking, it was way over my head, you know, in, in this language. So when I went to the classes, I, I, I would get frustrated with myself that I didn't, you know, I couldn't understand to, to higher level. And that made learning difficult and I, I didn't enjoy it. But since then, I've kind of taught myself to be a bit more relaxed and not to judge myself as much. And hey, if I don't understand everything, you know, I'm comfortable with that. And I can kind of sit back sometimes and say, well, you know, if I can ask politely, maybe to switch to English or we can try and do it another way in communication, you know, I'll do that. Um, it's been really useful for me though, when I'm, when I'm doing the, the, the reporting and the writing, because if I can display some, you know, meet someone halfway in a conversation to show them that I'm trying and I respect them trying to speak English, you know, I think there's more openness there. And I can obviously, you know, things that don't translate properly, I can interpret that and try and, you know, clarify that as well. So uh, it's been super useful. Um, and, you know, it's, it, you know, it's embarrassing beside the Belgians who are, have just fantastic language skills. Um, you know, there are some people in Belgium who speak four languages perfectly. Uh, most young people have a really good grasp of English. And it's, you know, it's, it's th their kind of culture for learning languages you know, puts people in, you know, Ireland and the UK and maybe even America to shame. Um, mm -hmm. I know there's a, there's a culture in America, uh, especially in Southern areas where the, there's really good Spanish as well because of kind of just the, the historical connections. And, but um, generally speaking, the, the English speaking world, you know, doesn't really have a patch on some European countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that if you... That it's an interesting point that you bring up as far as like access because you're approaching it kind of as an outsider and you may not uh, have the prowess with the language that you may want personally. You are given access and perhaps even unique access because um, people from uh, whether it's America or from like the English speaking world are kind of treated a little bit differently. Um, because our first language is the one that most of the world understands. And so I think that we are sometimes given information that people otherwise may not have because we can then take that skill and communicate that to a lot more people. 
Um, but that's an interesting point about building trust with people because you're showing that you're trying to um, understand their culture and understand them as people. Yeah, I, I, I certainly try to, you know, and, and part of the, the joy of the stuff that I'm doing is meeting so many different types of people. Um, you know, I acknowledge that there's a big difference between me and the people that I'm mostly interviewing. Um, and for me, that's interesting, like learning about, learning about people, learning about different perspectives and different, you know, ways of life. And it keeps me on my toes. And, you know, I, I, I tried it my best to be as sensitive as possible to their circumstances, but I also want to be truthful to the reader and challenge those people, maybe from a perspective I have that they don't, that will, you know, bring us some enlightened moment of conversation or some something that would be interesting for others to know. So, um, yeah, you never know what you're going to get when you go into a, a conversation with some of these, these people. Mm -hmm. No, it's interesting. And especially if, you are going into it trying to learn something about what they do and if they're guarding some information from you then that can that can be additionally uh complicated i do want to talk about that because i think that's something that uh that you do very well is that you're able to kind of um get some secrets out of people as far as what they do uh what makes their beers unique um but I want to set that up with a little bit about your understanding of brewing as well, too. So you do have, uh, you did study brewing as well, and you have uh, some experience in that. Do you want to just, um, was that something that you did like immediately upon learning about beer at first? Was that like part of your dive into saying, hey, this is beer, I'm into it. I'm going to like really get into it in this way, too. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So the first the first few years in Belgium were... Um, yeah, like like you said a minute ago about jumping in a car every weekend and going somewhere like it was basically just going around to like these like um tiny villages that were like you know so quirky and weird that were running like a a, a kind of a strange festival and there's a whole beer tent and you just taste beers that you just wouldn't get anywhere else and there'd be some local band playing and all the young people would turn up at a certain time and there was all these other traditions and you know in beautiful places in Wallonia and, and sort of weird corners of Flanders so just like working out you know all the different styles and and then I kind of I, I wanted to formalize that education a little bit more so I I did a, a qualification in the UK at the Institute of Brewing and Distilling um, they have a wing called the Beer Academy and it's a qualification to become a, a beer sommelier so effectively you you do some um fairly uh you do some sort of fairly basic in, uh, initial written tests and some tasting tests and then uh, you do an advanced test and then you sit uh like a one-on-one -on -one tasting panel with a with an adjudicator who gives you like five flights including one flight of off flavors and you have to talk your way through everything and there's there's a food element to it and there's a you know style history element and there's you know all that sort of stuff that's quite intense so we did that and then i did the um a course in Belgium, uh, which was also a similar course for like beer knowledge. And that was over six months. And then I did a, a, a course, which is actually an American course called the Cicerone. Um, and then I did a like an actual technical fermentation and brewing course in Belgium. And after that, I had the opportunity to work at a, a small brewery um, near Bruges called Siphon for a number of years. 
um, where we kind of myself and another colleague were basically developing all the recipes and, you know, kind of just, uh, you know, doing all production and, and everything ourselves. Um, so all of that, you know, obviously informs both how you write about beer, but also how you um, interact with brewers. Because I understand the frustration of a brewer. I understand the things that they're excited about because I'm also excited about them. Um, and it's about balancing the kind of the interest in the human with the the shared passion about the thing they're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of, that was my... That, that was my deep dive into kind of, you know, beer knowledge. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad you, you found that it was interesting when I talked to brewers that I could have some valuable, you know, two-way. Uh, and I think a lot of that is because of that education in beer. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think like uh, you're, you know, a successful beer writer is able to get someone to talk about the secrets of what they do in some way. And, Belgian producers are known whether these are actually like secrets that are a part of the profile of their beer or if it's just marketing. Like these are, this is always something that is part of like the lore of Belgian beer is that it's some something special about the yeast or there's something unique that they do. And so having the education, do you feel as though that's kind of allowed you to sniff through uh what is marketing and what is re- and what is uh, real? Oh yeah, there's a lot in that question. Um, I think the the the, que- the first the point on romance. So like obviously you know when I when I you know totally green tasted you know my first Belgian beer and, and I first tasted a Trappist and someone told me what a Trappist was. Of course that's romantic. You're like what? And then you hear about Lambic, you know, and you learn that and that's like, wow. And there is this kind of, you know, mythical quality to everything. And it's so different. And you almost don't want to know, you know, what, what it's what it's like inside the sausage factory. But like every place that is a production facility, um, you know, there are, a bu- a, there's a bunch of shit that goes wrong. And sometimes you take shortcuts. And sometimes there's things that, you don't, you might not necessarily want other people to know. And all those things are true in Belgium in, in almost every brewery. And most Belgian brewers, you know, don't, uh, spend time, you know, in the, in the, in the raft lofts of, you know, these amazing farmhouse places with wooden slats and all they, they fucking clean and they, you know, they, they clean in place with like caustic and the disinfect and, you know, there's the whole, the, the kind of the boring, you know, things, stuff that's not, doesn't have any glory to it. And some of them are using um, dry commercial yeast that thousands of other breweries are using. And, you know, there's a kind of a, a demystification when you kind of get into a lot of the breweries and you chat to them about, you know, what they're actually doing. Now, having said that, the deeper you go in and you find out about the decisions that they're making because of maybe what has gone on before because of the values that they hold being from where they're from. Um, you know, then, then it starts to get romantic again, you know, because you see what they're creating and what they've gone through to create it. And you're not, you're not on a superficial level of knowledge anymore. You're kind of like, yeah, these are the challenges that they have to face, you know, like 
all the stuff that goes wrong in Brasserie Dupont and they still produce Saison Dupont, which is just absolutely wonderful. Like, you know, that gives you a kind of the romance back again. And, I, you know, I've talked to other guys that have tried to um, make spontaneously fermented beer in other countries and have, are, are doing a great job about it and have invested years of their lives and sleepless nights and all sorts of like biochemical, you know, education into it. And even after all that, when they get to the end, they're still like, yes, it is the most romantic thing that, you know, we could ever come across. So, you know, there is that. But I mean, with the whole secret thing as well, I, I don't know how good I am at getting secrets out, but what I, I just want people to be as honest with me as they can. And I want to explain to them why I'm asking certain questions, why it might be useful for other people to know. And, you know, I, I don't think there's anybody who's ever spoken to me in depth. I hope not that regretted speaking to me. But I, I do think there would be little point in me um, sitting beside, driving somewhere to a brewery, researching them myself, sitting beside them for an hour and a half and letting them, you know, spew market and shit all over me. That's that's no good to them. It's no good to me, and it's no good to the people that are reading my stuff. So um, that's why I kind of I want to make sure I can make the the time I have with them as value, valuable as possible. Mm-hmm. No, ab- absolutely. Uh, you you want to have an honest conversation with someone, and there's a lot. I, I think, especially for a long time, beer writing was perpetuating marketing in a lot of ways. And there was a turn at a certain point um, when there just became more beer in the world and people uh, were more regularly able to travel to breweries and see things that things became a little more honest. Yeah. But I, I mean, I don't think I'm the type of writer or person who's like doing exposés or gotcha type stuff. Um I am not the type of person who does um, news stories. Like I, I don't, I can't react quickly to stuff. And that that's a skill that, you know, I respect in a lot of other people. There are some people who are just amazing at that. Um, I don't do like business analysis, although there is some, you know, reflection in, in my work. Um, you know, I, most of my stuff is like, you know, I'm sitting on it for, for months. It's, it's mostly long form stuff. It's mostly with a narrative structure. And, um, you know, that's the kind of stuff I want to, I kind of want to do. So that also helps me explain to people why they should tell me certain things and talk to me in a certain way, rather than just, you know, um, this whole conversation will be summarized in like a two paragraph news bit that like, that's not going to happen. So how are you getting on with the Girardin? I love this. Yeah, I'm getting like a, a really wonderful uh, dry hay, a little bit of lemon and some apricot as well. Like I'm getting some of the like more slightly tropical end of the dried fruit, uh, uh that's, of the dried fruit. That's exactly what I'm getting. For me, it's getting more fruity now. I'm getting lots of stone fruit and a little bit of like tropical notes. I'm getting a nice dryness, but not like there's no astringency, there's no acridity, there's no like I don't also don't get a lot of wood, maybe a touch, but there's nothing to like stop me from, you know, enjoying it. Mm-hmm. And um also it's not super heavy on bread. It's more like lactic lemony than it is bread, so it's like really drinkable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was gonna say this is just dangerously drinkable. Um 
Yeah, and I've enjoyed it a lot more as it's as it's kind of warmed up. And uh, I thought I would get a little more. I wasn't expecting like a ton of expressive wood, but I was expecting something of that to come through a little bit. But uh, I'm not disappointed that it hasn't because it's just allowed uh, all these other kinds of flavors to show up and like party together in a fun yeah. way. Yeah, I think you'll get like some of the old diffusers now are becoming very uh, a little bit more accessible. Like. And I don't mean simple, I just mean like softer. And I think what some of the breweries are doing and Bone is doing a great job of this is like in some of their kind of, their more um, refined blends that are, that carry more older Lambic. Mm -hmm. You have a lot more wood character there and that's really coming through in those beers and less so in the Eau Diffuse. So, um, you know, that means that if you want that kind of more intense like woody vanilla character, you can go to maybe a step up to to to, to one of those blends, um, and you know with with more and more blending capacity, you know you can start to see these different types of of hues develop, which is you know which is great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the first uh, bone uh, beers that I tried was the Mariage Parfait, and I as I understand that is a higher. Uh, a higher percentage of the blend on that is aged is the aged component. Um, yeah, and yeah, absolutely. I found that to be really, really uh, enjoyable as far as like the wood and then the expressive, uh, expressive fruit perception uh, balancing out is really, uh, really enjoyable. That was like a 2007. I, I still remember that as like a, one yeah, of my I, beers that got me into that particular kind of style of uh, of lamb of uh, lambic. Yeah, we had a very um, small um, beer list at our wedding, myself and my wife, and one of the beers was uh, Bone Mariage Parfait. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. it's a, it's just a beautiful cuisine. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, one of the one of the other things that you kind of focus on in your uh, in your writing is family and i know we kind of touched on it uh earlier but this is something that's pretty unique about belgian beer and you find some correlatives in the wine world whether it's in france or even we're starting to see this in america as well too um but is it uh is it something that like your interest in finding these like family stories uh is that something that you look for specifically when you're kind of thinking about people to talk with is that uh, or is that something that like kind of comes up uh after you've already decided hey i want to talk to these people um this is not the first time someone has actually said this to me about the theme of family in a lot of the stuff that i'm doing and i've I've had to kind of think about it um I think it's just a theme that is really pervasive in, in Belgian beer that kind of is unavoidable. And there are a couple of things like that. I think it ties in, but it's slightly different is the theme of tradition versus like innovation. Now that those are you know very difficult terms to define and to understand what they mean, but that is something which I think the Belgians are constantly atten- have attention, you know, with internally and, and it's the same with family. And I think, why why it pops up, I guess, in a lot of the stories is because it's really there and you and it, you can't kind of write around it. Um, you know, w- when you're dealing with like, for example, like an actual family brewery, you've got 
people that may be the seventh or eighth generation of their family managing a brewery. Now, you can't tell me that having grown up all your life with the pressure, learning about those six or seven generations before you, seeing every single day the thing that they've built and having people all around you all the time talk about the previous generations and your father and your grandfather, you can't tell me that doesn't play on someone's psyche and impact on, you know, like what their fears and dreams are in life, you know, whether that's escaping the whole thing completely to do the thing that they really want to do or like being, making their family proud and, and like, it, you know, doing, the, taking the, the brewery to the next level that the others couldn't or, 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 or whatever. And sometimes those people find those, those things hard to suppress. And I can immediately see that there's, you know, this tension in them. Uh, and other times it becomes, you know, more clear later on when I'm talking to other people or doing some further reporting. So it, it's kind of always there. And, you know, there are a few countries with that family legacy in brewing, you know, uh, as Belgium, but it's also a very universal thing. You know, there are family businesses all over the world, whatever language you speak, whatever culture you're from, you know, building something for you and yours and passing it down to help them um, has is something that is human. And, you know, I'm sure you have a lot of the, the similar stories and tensions in American businesses, you know, all across different sectors. So it's both unique to Belgium and, you know, interesting for everybody because of that. And, you know, family's different. It's not like friends. It's not like pure business. It's there's emotion involved and there's money involved and there's different personalities from different age groups involved. So. I guess it's not something I, I I don't want every story to be about family, but I I don't I won't avoid it if it's if it is the story if you understand, and it's part of you know where this brewery's going or what might make it fail or what will make sure it doesn't fail. So uh, th those are the the kind of the, the themes that keep popping up, you know. And obviously, I'm I'm also looking for stories that have other quirky narratives that are di very different. But yeah, it's just something that that's that's there. Um, uh, in in kind of the brewing the brewing world in Belgium. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, for people <laughs> that have and you've met and interviewed people that have whose path into brewing and into this industry are a little closer to your own as well. Um, do you find that your kind of interactions with them or how you think about their stories? are a little different because they're closer to home than say like uh, a family, uh, a story that is, ends up having this family component to it. Um, I'm not sure I've, I've really encountered anyone that I've identified as having a similar path to me. Um, yeah, the people that have come in from different backgrounds into, into beer are, um, you know, I can, I can kind of understand that, I guess, you know, um, because I haven't always been a brewer in my life. Um, but, you know, the, they're still of a different nationality and ha maybe have a very different personality from me. Um, I think one of the things, I'm just, uh, mostly I'm trying to find kind of the, their North Star, like what is this person, what does this person want? What quest are they on in their life? And what's in their way? And the reason I'm trying to look for that is because every single one of us as a human, 
we're trying to get somewhere or do something. And sometimes we don't realize what that is or where we're going, but there's something that we want in our lives that we don't have right now. And we're in a constant state of wanting that change. And unfortunately, there are there are shit in the way. Some of it is stuff that we put in the way of ourselves and some of it is stuff that is external. And if if I can identify in in this in these stories about brewers and and you know the, the, the people in Belgian beer, how they overcame the problems that they had to get to where they wanted to go, or how they weren't able to do that and, and as a result failed, I think that can inspire people to sort of you know get to where they're going in their own lives. I mean, I know I've read amazing writing and reporting from writers that I love, not necessarily in the beer world. And I've been able to project that onto the things that I want to do. And it's like, yeah, you know, that's, this has taught me something and this has inspired me to do it. So that's kind of the, 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 the thing that's always going on in the back of my mind is like how, if, if someone wasn't really interested in this beer, how could I write this story so that they just could not stop reading it, that, that it would just relate to, you know, they could relate to it because then I can, you know, have a, a wider readership still be true to, you know, the beer, you know, theme of the story, but, you know, make sure that it's, you know, has value as a story for, for everyone. Mm -hmm. That sounds like such a pretentious fucking airy fairy answer, but it's just, it's, <laughs> it's, it's how I feel about it. And that's mm -hmm. what I'm really trying to do. And I don't always succeed, but, um, you know, that's, that's kind of, that's always in the back of my mind. Mm-hmm. Now you've spoken with uh, a number of folks that are very high profile in the Belgian beer world. Was there any any kind of and this could preferably be kind of earlier in your uh, in the time of you being involved in writing? Um, was there any moments that you had while you were speaking with someone uh, where they said something and you were just kind of floored, uh, whether it was something that you weren't anticipating of, of their philosophy or their own um, personality that you hadn't expected in your research ahead of time. Uh, who floored you at the uh, when you were kind of learning about writing and finding your own voice? I guess all the interviews with people like, so, so the, the, the podcast that I have, so interviews, you know, I do for written articles, but also I do like straight, you know, um, podcast interviews and then recently I've done kind of more narrative podcasts which involve interviews with several different people but but tell a kind of a much broader story over the course of the arc of the podcast um, and you know I guess just in in all those interviews you're there's always something that surprises you um, I do try as much as I can to research um, as as much as I can, so that the, the conversation has meaning, and it's not just like asking shit that's already out there in the world that you know is obvious. And also, I believe that if I do research into someone, that will be immediately obvious to the person I'm talking to. And I think it's a le it shows a level of respect that like I am not just rocking up here and I don't know who the fuck you are. Like you know, I I value your time speaking to me, and because of that, I have you know, prepared for this moment. It's like the, the, the Abraham Lincoln quote, um, prepare to fail, fail to prepare. You know, you have to do your, do your homework before you get there. So, 
Um, I kind of, um, I guess not, I don't think I've been, you know, I've, I've been kind of knocked off my stride a little bit at times, either because when I've said, I've asked something, they've, they've felt challenged and I need to kind of, you know, readjust the, the vibe of the conversation or maybe they've said something that has sent me in a completely different direction. And I just, you know, throw my notes away basically and just follow that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of just, and it's definitely something that you learn with experience because when I first started to interview people, you know, I, I didn't really know what I was doing and I learned from doing it and then started to actively listen to how other people interviewed well, um, you know, to, to get, get a more valuable conversation. Absolutely. I'll tell you what, I did kind of want, I was, I had a moment when I was in the store and I almost threw this into chaos a little bit and picked up a bottle of, uh, of La Folie um, because it, it's from this world. It's also from, oh, <laughs> and Jason's having a, the, something in a totally different world. But per Jason. Yeah. Um, the La Folie is, is an interesting beer. And I think that like Peter Bocart's story is really, really interesting. And I think that people like him, whether they're actually from Belgium, uh, whether it's he or whether it's the Unibrew story or whether it's Rob Todd from, uh, from Allagash or uh, no, did, Russian I, rivers. I, and I'm sorry, just a, it's a, it might be an interesting note. I live now today in a house, which yeah. I recently bought on the same street that Peter Bukhar grew up in. Wow. I think you yeah, just floored he, me. That's, that's something. <laughs> so he, he, he uh, grew up in a house just uh, up, up the top of, the, of this street that I live on now in the same mm -hmm. village. And I didn't know that until I met him, you know, two or three years ago. And he told me just after I had moved here, mm -hmm. he was back, he was traveling back from the States with his wife and uh, visiting some breweries. And I met up with him for a beer. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's incredible. That's a talk about a small world. What, uh, what, what I have, I was going to say, I think it's been a very, very long time since I had, uh, this beer. And that was part of why I ended up not throwing this into chaos and picking La Folie was because, uh, I think it's probably been the better part of several years since I've had this beer, unfortunately. Um, but why did you, uh, choose, uh, choose the golden band? So, so I, I live now in a, a, the region around a city um, called Kortrijk, which is in the southwest of Flanders. So that's very close to the Walloon border, but also very close to the French border. And it's, it's the region of Flemish red brown beer. Now, I know that in America, there's a whole, um, you know, you have all these kind of style um, boxes for these types of beers. Everything. I think, it, yeah. So I, th I think <laughs> we love boxes here. Yeah. <laughs> I, th I think in America, the you know with the 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 BJCP and Cicerone mm -hmm. stuff, they refer to the kind of wood fooder aged uh, beer as Flemish Red, and mm -hmm. the 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 stainless steel uh, fermented mixed firm stuff as. Um, you call it red uh, brown, Flemish brown. I think brown it's or? red. I think it's red brown. If it's red brown, if it okay, yeah, so, wood, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so that does that. That's not the case here at all. You know, those are the the, the those traditions in Southwest Flanders and East Flanders. Um, you know, this style is seen as one style, and it's referred to as old brown. 
Um, mm-hmm. So I guess you could say that the red, the Flemish red and the, the, the red brown are like subsets of old brown if you wanted to distinguish that way. Um, and, you know, the tradition in East Flanders is very much, you know, defined by what Leafmonts have done. Now, I live in the Southwest Flanders, so my local beers, which are incredibly cheap, like you go into all the cafes around all these villages that I live in and you can buy... Um, you know, a glass of old brown from draft for like one euro, one euro 20, whatever it is. And it's, it's, I absolutely love it. It's so um, like uh, refreshing. It's so full flavored. It's like not too high in alcohol. It's got acid. It's got sweetness. It's like, fuck yeah. And it's just really drinkable. And um, so I, so I, I drink those and I'm kind of used to drinking those. So I thought I would pick something different for this evening, which is the leaf months, which is like, oh, the is a city, maybe, I don't know, 35, 40 kilometers from, from where I live. So not too far, but you know, it's kind of, so the difference with leaf ones is that they, um, they have, you know, open fermentation for, for their kind of, um, the original beer. And then it's, um, it's blended back with young beer. So you have like a lactic acid fermentation. They're trying to minimize, you know, other, um, yeast and bacterial, growth in there and keep it mostly a lactic fermentation, but there's just like a, saccharide, a saccharomyces element to it. Um, and of course, in West Flanders, then you have the, the the wood-based fermentation. So you have a little bit more activity for, you know, in terms of like tannin flavors and, and oak flavors. Um, but I mean, yeah, there, there's a whole bunch of other breweries in between those two regions, like smaller guys like Verzette are one of them and Alvina and, you know, that are and, and Van Hansebrook a bit further north and then they're all doing slightly different things. So the whole category, I guess, is old brown. It's like a, a, a red brown mixed fermentation beer, which is sweet and sour. You know, that's kind of what the style is. Um, but yeah, I chose it just because it's a local beer style and one of my favorites. That's kind of not that sexy and, you know, not, not that many people drink that often, but I just, I just really love it. Mm-hmm. I, I think uh, for us in the States, uh, the Duchess is normally what people would associate uh, with this style. Uh, for me, uh, I came into it with, uh, I think, Ishtagem's Grand Crew was one of the first that I had from that uh, from that world. And at the Yeah, Strube, time, the Grand Crew, yeah. Yeah, that's... Mm-hmm. And did, that, did, think, that, did, did that make it to America? Yeah, yeah. So the place that I worked at uh, was called Local Option, a well-known beer bar, and... We worked a ton with uh, Shelton Brothers and with uh, a lot of the importers. And so like uh, Mistreach's Oct was another one that we had uh, somewhat regularly. And that st- there was just a ton fr- of like, whether it was Oud Brune or Red Brown, we didn't, we just thought that that whole style was just an interesting expression of acid that you could try in so many different ways. And the the stories from the small producers were were interesting and for people coming in that may have had familiarity with uh with it via duchess uh or maybe they had uh that they had tried you know, rodenbach or something rodenbach was it's probably the poster boy i think for the style certainly here in terms of the, mm-hmm. the amount produced you know it's the <coughs> it's the, the brewery that produces most of that beer in the world and you know uh, you maybe you've heard of van der Hinste, Ode Brown, and mm-hmm. um uh, the other kind of major one is the Brabandra, which which have a beer called Petrus Old Brown. Mm-hmm, of um, course, yeah. But those are the kind of the four main family producers. But you know, there's a bunch of others. I think the one big difference in that style of beer is like because they've also been producing that for quite a long time and have a, a really good history and knowledge of it. 
But the difference with Lambic, for example, is that the Lambic breweries, that's all they do. That's all they can do. Not because they, they don't have the knowledge, just because it would be impossible to manage, you know, that level of spontaneously fer- f- fermentation and maturation and blending at the level they're doing at with like, you know, producing hazy IPAs, you know, it would just be too, you know, <laughs> but the, the, the difference with, with the red brown guys is that they ha- have for generations been making like Belgian eels and lagers as well, you know, so they're not, that style is not as reliant on the market maybe as uh, Lambic is. So they can keep it going in a, like a tiny quantity in a bad year, you know, in the, in the sort of the seventies the, the or the eighties or whatever, maybe probably the nineties the was the worst. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that there's a bit of a rival, they can add food that just continue what they're doing, you know, and it's not like a, a like a existential crisis for the, the existence of the brewery. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's something that, that that's kind of there as, as an identity thing, but it's not, you know, business reliant because they're still making their, you know, golden strong ale or their triple. So that, that's kind of the difference, I guess, in, in you know, the, the, the operations element of those two types of breweries. Um, but I mean, yeah, and, and some of those guys that I just mentioned are also making, you know, some, some fantastic other beers. I think um, Rodenbach is the only one that doesn't make anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it, it, it's just one of the, it's a style that... <sighs> You know, for people that were getting interested in craft beer in the U.S. kind of before the localization movement of like 2011, 2012, um, you really kind of couldn't avoid Belgian beers in a lot of ways. Like you experienced them whether because you like things that were high alcohol or because of um, kind of the the history and some of the stories behind the beers were were interesting and uh, wide scale availability too, because the product was kind of imported and then broken up and sold all over the U.S. I think that these brands kind of got built in uh, in very interesting ways, and so the producers were able to to export quite a bit over time. Um, do you feel as though? Uh, I mean, I've seen export kind of change in the U.S. because there's. 7,000 breweries now as opposed to 1,000. And do you feel as though the exporter or the the brewers in Belgium are finding new markets for the product that they used to be sending to the U.S.? Totally, totally. Yeah. 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 yeah so that, that kind of shift has, has been going on for a few years now. And, you know, you're right that at one point, um, America was absolutely like a major market for, for Belgian beer. Um, Americans became interested in beer. They became interested in how beer is made. They became interested in beer from other countries. So, you know, dry German pilsners, you know, spontaneously fermented beers from the Pajotenland, uh, you know, English eels and their kind of subtly fruity esters, and, you know, so they, they, and they just took that and they made something of their own. And that's just exploded, you know, for a number of factors in the States and, you know, Belgian beer kind of because of the nature of Belgium it's it's a divided place so it's divided culturally linguistically politically and it's also been ruled by a by a lot of people over the course of time so you know the Portuguese were here the the, the Austrians the, you know the French were here and 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 they've kind of had to 
just deal with whatever shit was going on in their village or in the you know close to, in the borders that were close to them, and that has made Belgians quite um, canny at just dealing with like tricky circumstances and thinking of workarounds, and they're they don't really they're not so much big on ego they're just big on like making shit work and that's why such a dysfunctional place can operate so well and this is totally the case with Belgian brewers so like when they see that america is developing its own incredible beer culture um they they just say right we would just pivot and the, like at the minute i don't think any breweries will be relying on export to the states they've all shifted and I, like i've been having these conversations for the last two or three years and they're like yeah we don't do we don't we don't we send like a fraction of our export to america now where it used to be like 90 percent of what we exported would go to the states mm-hmm. um and now they're like yeah we 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 do like like france has become a big market for belgian breweries because one the f- young french people are you know have have an interest in good food and drink and they're becoming more and more interested in beer. And, um, it's a huge country compared to Belgium, France, geographically and population wise. So, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a ready market right there. And secondly, like it is right beside Belgium. So instead of sending your beer across the Atlantic ocean, you can have it in a French city within 24 hours, you know? Um, so France, a big market, uh, the emerging economic markets are all asking for Belgian beer. So you'll find a lot going to Brazil, Russia, huge market, uh, India and China. Uh, they're all basically like just going down the rate beer and on top checklists and like contacting breweries out of the blue and ordering like, a, uh, you know, like massive containers of, of beer. So like the Belgians have been doing this transition for a while. And like, I don't want to say that, you know, like the Americans have a, a false sense of their importance in the Belgian beer world, because I don't think that's the case, but I don't think there's any, you know, there's no reliance on, on that interest. It was certainly, it's certainly now a prestige market because I think the Belgians finally realized that America is one of the greatest beer countries in the world. Whereas that was not the case in the Belgian perception 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think in the general community, like the, the kind of non-beer world, you'll still have Belgians who are like, how can that be the case? They make Budweiser. That's all they know. That's what they will say. Whereas Belgian brewers now, the, the, the information is coming two ways rather than one way. It used to be American brewers looked for to Belgians for what they were doing. Now the Belgians are looking at... Now Belgium still has a really incredible base level because there's a there's a culture here of brewing they have good education in schools for brewing schools they have home brewing clubs you get taught by the generation before you you have friends who homebrew with you um you know there, there's a culture of getting into brewery you don't start from scratch um and so that's always there but that can also be negative because you could be taught to do things that your father did or that your friend did and not kind of investigate it for yourself and and now i think they're kind of looking at you know america and stuff so but from, from the kind of the market the, the original question you were asking about the market yeah that's not going to be a problem for belgium they've already shifted and you know anything that they're sent to the states is now like there was one point where america was the market they would dump shit into mm-hmm. you know that's like well just send that to america that that stuff that's that's you know virgin on vinegar 
or that fermented too hard and slightly overcarbed, just send it to, to the States. They'll drink it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they love sour in America. Exactly. <laughs> that is not the case anymore because, you know, I think America is now kind of a prestige market and it's so competitive in itself that if you don't, if your products don't show up in the best condition that they possibly can be, then, you know, that's not going to be a good reflection on your brewery. And of course the world is smaller now with the internet. So someone drinking a beer in California or in, 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 in Maine, can easily find out exactly everything they need to about a beer in seconds that's brewed in Belgium rather than some mystery that would have, you know, pervaded beforehand. Mm -hmm. No, it's interesting. And I think we've seen this shift in a lot of ways here. Obviously you can see it on shelves, but you also can see that in terms of the profile of certain bars and restaurants that may have, uh, been known for carrying these things from abroad and as consumers shift and that uh, the value towards that changes, then people just kind of move on to the next thing. And so, it, you know, for for me as someone that's kind of nostalgic for a specific time in American beer culture, it kind of stinks because I want to taste things from all over the world. And I think for a lot of people, this idea of expressing your curiosity through trying things from all over the world was uh, was how you developed your palate because localization of palate is something that you know can be an issue if you only allow yourself to drink things from around here. So if I want to learn about hazy IPAs and I only drink hazy IPAs from Illinois, for example, then I'm drinking beer that's made by people that have the same palate. So they're all going to taste the same and they're going to, for example, maybe attenuate their beers a little bit less and they're going to be a little sweeter. And so you end up with, uh, you end up with a different kind of hive mind than if you were to try beers from all over the world in a way. I think it's, I think it's a a balance. You need to have both, right? Mm -hmm. You want to, you want to, you know, be able to drink those things that are produced around you and support local businesses and, you know, be a part of that experience and also understand what's happening in other parts of the world and the same with any food and drink. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm in Belgium. I, I sometimes drink Belgian whiskey, but does that mean I'm not going to drink Irish or Scottish whiskey? No fucking way, mm-hmm. you know? So <laughs> it's, and I know I drink Belgian beer, of course, but that doesn't mean I, don't drink beer from the States or from the UK or Ireland. I mean, that's, it's, or from, you know, Scandinavia, that's, it's, it's not the case at all. So I think, yeah, to, to say some people that say exclusively drink local, I think that's, you know, that's obviously not a good approach. And, but I, I understand why, you know, people want to do that, but um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's just about balance, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. As far as where you're seeing Belgian producers getting their sort of inspiration from uh, you kind of alluded to this in your answer in the answer to your last question um, but there is a little more coming in from abroad that is uh, inspiring producers and maybe this is younger producers as well too um, can you talk about kind of what you're seeing uh, on that front where this is where the sources of inspiration are coming from and how does this kind of interact with uh, some of the traditions or some of the long-held styles and beliefs that pe- other people that have been making beer for a long time hold. Um, yeah, well, th- that 
the place where they meet is the point of tension that's interesting, you know, and that creates interesting beers and breweries. Um, I think the vast majority of kind of younger breweries that have not been around for a long time are still producing very classic, unexciting, but technically solid, like Belgian eels. So, you know, if, if, if I was to look at it from a cold economic point of view and I wanted to start a brewery tomorrow, the first beer that I would brew would be a triple because that was what, what would sell. And I would make sure to brew that, you know, uh, in a particular way with a particular hot bitterness and a certain yeast profile and a certain alcohol level and a certain malt bill that people would be familiar enough to know that it would sell very well. And like that's like I've talked to some also talked to some brewers who have been against brewing kind of the kind of strong bells and blonde or the triple style beers. And they've done one as an experiment or as a one off. And it's just so like hot cakes because this is what the Belgian palate is used to and expects and loves. Mm-hmm. So the, the kind of I think the point to make here is that Belgian is a very conservative beer market. Um, you know, like other beer nations, it's the product, the, the biggest selling beer is is like a European sort of pilsner. Um, but there's a bigger fraction of the market that's broken up into all these different like sort of what they call specialty beers. Um, you know, so I think, you know, like, for example, where I'm from in Ireland, I think the the, the, the kind of the, the non-independent sector, the, you know, like the, the, the Heineken's and the Diageo's like really own 98% of all beer sold. In America, I think it's probably closer to, I don't know, 80 or 85%. Mm-hmm. But in Belgium, you know, it's there's a big chunk of the market, which is like these family breweries and these, you know, smaller breweries. And, you know, it, it's it's... And they're not new and they're not making IPAs, but it's just kind of, it's a more fractured kind of market that way. Um, So, you know, I think that kind of, that's a positive thing. Um, So in terms of the inspiration of the brewers, they're certainly informed by that conservative nature and by kind of that, what traditional drinkers expect. Younger drinkers definitely branch out more and they're very influenced by like the new world hop. So, you know, tropical fruit, pine, resin. Um, but, you know, even the ones that s- say they're rejecting the kind of the traditional Belgian room culture can't really fully escape it just because it's what they've grown up with and, and how they're trying to sell their beers. So that's always kind of there, you know, in the, in the, in the background. Um, and I think there's probably a stubbornness too. you know, I'm a fucking Belgian. You know, why should I, why should I be trying to replicate, you know, a beer from America or a beer from Scandinavia or a beer from England? I'm, I'm you know, this is fucking Belgium. So mm-hmm. that's probably, there's probably an underlying, not arrogance, but, you know, assumption that they don't need to look elsewhere too much. Um, I think it's when they get into the details, they want to find out, you know, what, 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 how, what, what's, what, which way are you extracting oils into this beer? You know, how are you dry hopping? What are the, what are the kind of the dry hopping levels in terms of weights? Um, you know, finding out about temperatures for like whirlpool additions and spins and stuff. Um, 
they, they, then they want to kind of get as much literature as they can. And there's a really good scientific literature in Belgium generally, but it's more focused, I think, on, on fermentation than it is on anything else. So, yeah, I guess the summary would be more and more interested in what's happening outside Belgium, but um, definitely influenced by, you know, the, the weight of tradition and what's, what's happened before. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. Um, and, I, and I think that there's a, a lot of producers that I've seen that, uh, that have in some ways adopted some of this like technical knowledge from the U S uh, but they've, uh, looked maybe as far as Britain for actually taking a style and incorporating it into their product line. But there's always been an interesting symbiology between Britain and Belgium as far as whether that's sharing ingredients or uh, synchronicity in styles. Um, Do you see that occurring still? And. That's kind of an interesting question right now, isn't it? With with Brexit and kind of the UK separation from the rest of Europe. No, I think the, the geographic like location of the UK and Belgium, they're they're right beside each other. They're so close. Um like the 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 hop farmers in the southeast of England around Kent and those in the northwest of Belgium, you know, have pretty much the same climate and soil types and are and are and are also growing a lot of the same varieties. Um, you know, there's a lot of shared knowledge and respect there. Um, you know, the the two world wars that occurred in Belgium, where you had huge amounts of like soldiers from the UK stationed and living there, bringing their beers with them. You know, you know, kind of sharing what they their what they thought of drinking experiences with Belgians who would adapt what they were doing at the time, and then you know bringing beers that Belgians would drink and then obviously try and replicate in some way that had a huge Im- impact. Um, you know, there's been a lot of UK brewers and, um, intellectuals who have also done a lot of work, you know, in, in Belgium, um, in terms of like, you know, educational brewing resources and stuff. So that, you know, the history of Rodenbach is tied up in old Porter brewing back in the UK, but there's always going to be a connection because of the geographical location and, you know, a lot of, still to this day and a lot of beer enthusiasts you know coming over all the time you know pre-covid to, to, to belgium um the, the the cultures are certainly different They're, you know you, you sort of see it under the under the sheets a little bit like you know it's you wouldn't know it unless you kind of kind of look for the history a bit so like for example you take i think what the brits call real ale so you know um cask conditioned beer I mean, that, you know, on the face of it has a lot of similarities to the bottle conditioning um, culture in Belgium. So you have this kind of live product, which is evolving before the consumer drinks it. Um, now, I, I I think that that's where a lot of the similarities end because, you know, the carbonation levels in cask beer and, and Belgian eels are completely different. Um, you know, you have a lot more fermentation character, I think, not nowadays in Belgian beers than you do in UK beers. Um, so it's, you know, th- those kind of types of small, you know, little under the sheet reminders of the relationship are certainly there, but um, maybe over time it becomes more and more, um, you know, they become more and more separated. I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. How is, uh, how is this, uh, this treating you after it's warmed up a little bit? 
It's it's good. Yeah, it's good. It's it's you, you know you have a lot more kind of maltiness present than you kind of do in the in the in the hues where it's you know a lighter touch on the on the kind of the, the wheat and the barley. Here it's right up there. You know you know the kind of the, the little bit of caramel quality, a little bit of toffee. Um, the sweetness is up in the front, um, but it's it's you know it's still got that nice kind of lactic soft kind of sour flavor in the back. Um, I just, I just think it's it's really easy drinking this type of beer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, eight percent drinks very very easy with this one. Uh, I I think that I get a lot of uh, red fruit, and I get like the acidity is just gentle enough. My stomach has over the years kind of become a little more sensitive to acidity, and so that's kind of shaped what I choose to drink quite a bit. Yeah. And this is just like a perfect uh, kiss of that uh, with a lot of wonderful kind of malt profile as well. It's just, yeah, it's just very, very also pleasant. Such a good beer for like, you know, like I also drink, I like to drink wine. So, you know, there's this, you know, even though it's completely different, it shares so much with like a kind of a, like a Burgundy or Bordeaux, you know, it's got the kind of the big, vinous quality and it's kind of got the you know kind of quite a present body and um yeah it's it's you know it, it's it's great for having with food it's great for having like one or two small glasses when you're out in the cafe um the the leaf ones is like i, I had the sometimes at, at festivals they might pour like really old bottles of leaf ones that you can try and like the older stuff is you know it's like um I don't know. It's, it's, it's almost like rum, you know. It's like so intense, and like it's all molasses, and um, it's kind of a really interesting experience. Like you couldn't be drinking, you know, more than a couple of sips because it's so intense, and it has gone, you know, well beyond the point where you know it should be served in, in larger quantities. But it's just interesting to see, you know, pre-pasteurization of old brown and leafmans, you know, what it would, what how it would have evolved over time, and um, yeah, I mean, they're kind of a. Now they're owned by the Duval Morcat family, and you know it, the Leafmonts is an institution in in, in Odenarda that that everyone in, the, in that region knows. So it's 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 um it's a really interesting beer. When a uh, when a Belgian brewery is bought by a larger conglomerate or becomes a part of an association, and we've seen consolidation uh, on the front of producers in Belgium. Does the consumer perception change at all in the way that, say, if a brewery in the U.S. is purchased, say when Goose Island was purchased by AB InBev, there is a, a pretty big uproar, at least, and I can say locally here in Chicago, of people that uh, all of a sudden were convinced that maybe the beer changed or there was some other thing that they could taste that justified their outrage in some way. Um does Ted has have you seen things like that happen in Belgium as a result of the consolidation? Um, I think the honest answer is it depends on the consumer, and it depends on the purchasing brewery. Mm-hmm. Now, another point I'll make is that in Belgium, which I don't think is the case in the states, is that brand seems to play a more powerful role than the brewery name. So for example, 
if if I'm a brewery in America, you know, I will make sure that my name is kind of the the forefront part of the branding of the beer, and then the beer name or style will, you know, be associated with that. But in Belgium, a lot of the times, the name of the brewery is in the background deliberately, and the brand, you know, takes on its own life. And another brand from the brewery might have a completely different vibe or feel, which the brewery believes will contribute to a greater market share. So you might have one brand that is quite classic and classy and, you know, aims for the kind of the, the beer connoisseur and another brand from the same brewery that is kind of, you know, trying to go for a younger market and is a bit more edgy and maybe silly. And they don't particularly want the name of the brewery to be anywhere near either of those things. They just try it. Look, so for an example, an example would be like, um, Dubuisson have like Cuvée de Trolles. I don't know if, I think you call it Scaldis in the States. Mm-hmm. So they have like their, their Bush brands, which are, which are kind of the, 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 the sophisticated Belgian ales, high in alcohol and, you know, you know, full bodied. And then they have the kind of younger beers. And another example would be, um, uh, the Bostales Brewery, who are an example of someone who was bought by InBev. So they have, you know, triple carbonate and, you know, there would be a lot of people that don't know Triple Carmelite is, a, is from Brauerei Bostels and mm-hmm. that like um, Deus is from Bostels and, you know, they, they kind of, and, and, and Powell Quack, the beer is from Bostels. They, they kind of keep those brands, their own brand. And, you know, that was bought by InBev. Triple Carmelite is now in a lot more cafes in Belgium than it was previously. Has it suffered? I think time will tell. Um you know, and, and, and the, the point about like who buys, I think someone like Duval Morcat are having incredible respect among a lot of beer consumers here. And mm. not only did they buy very sensibly, like Michel Morcat is a very astute businessman and they bought Schuf at the perfect time. And, you know, they bought Leafman's and people argue that, you know, they saved the heritage of the brand and the brewery. Um, they, they also own the Konink, which is like the kind of defining beer of the city of Antwerp, a huge city in Belgium. And that beer, even though it may not be the most exciting to some people, you know, represents so much about the city that it will always be there. And, you know, Duval Morcat made canny purchase and they didn't fuck about too much with the le- legacy of the brands, but they also improved the quality of all of those beers. Absolutely. So, you know, if, if, if Mortgat buy in Belgium, I think the attitude might be different than InBev whose priorities perhaps are geared more towards profit and margins than maybe towards the legacy of a brand, for example, or maybe the flavor profile. And, you know, I can't say that you know, conclusively, because I don't know what goes on in those, after those purchases, but, you know, that's certainly the reputation in a lot of people's minds. Um, so yeah, it depends on who's buying. It depends on the consumer. Most of them just, you know, if they like the brand, they'll stick with it. Others will be dead against it. So yeah, it, it just depends. Mm-hmm. No, that's interesting. And I think that people have been like the general public, I guess, have been more concerned about buys from AB locally as opposed to even Constellation, maybe Miller Coors, uh, but certainly not like Duval's uh, entrance into the U.S. market. I think that that's probably more people that actually follow the industry that even know about that stuff at a certain point because 
those breweries had such massive legs on their own uh, regionally uh, or nationally in some cases too. Yeah, yeah. So many, I think there's probably more players in the States than there is in, in Belgium, so. Um, I was going to ask about uh, kind of Bira del Borgo and there's like a class of producers that uh, are not all Belgian necessarily, but that are part of a sort of class of like 2009 to 13 that I would think of Bel like Stroysa would be one of them of like the Belgian producers, but uh, there's kind of like a, a pan Europeanness to them of like de Molin being in that group as well. And uh, Del Borgo, maybe Narke from Sweden, for example. And, and they were kind of, I can a Napper beer from Spain. Like they would all be like a block I would consider in some ways. And maybe some of that is my interpretation because they all came in more or less through the same importer. And so our exposure to them was kind of uh, in the same way, but they also kind of did the same European festival circuit and they played it. They were all in the same bars. They did events together. Um, how has something like uh, COVID-19 impacted and uh, we could throw a Dela Sen in there as well. Like how have those companies kind of weathered COVID-19 with dried up, uh, dried up draft sales and kind of the, the, the changing complexion of how people are consuming as well too. Um, it's pretty bad. And there's going to be a, there's obviously I don't have a, a crystal ball. I can't say anything for certain, but there's going to be a, a shake-up in Belgian beer. There's going to be a lot of, um, I think we're going to lose a lot of cafes. And I mean like cafes that have cultural significance and have been around for a long time and do a lot for the beer world. And also just cafes that are important community hubs, you know, for people that want to drink their pincha and, you know, uh, meet their friends. And you know, that's part of Belgian beer culture. Um, yeah, I mean, there, it, it's been reported that the likes of De La Seine, for example, are struggling. Um, and, you know, they haven't hit their even reduced targets that they've set out for themselves. They've been completely upfront and honest about that recently. Uh, they've had offers of buyouts because of that. Obviously, people are thinking that they're in a weak enough position that they'll they'll give in, and they've refused that. Um, you know, th there's a bunch of very important cafes which have, like, launched crowdfunding campaigns to try and survive. Um, in, in particularly a couple in Brussels that you know have sparked a whole generation's love of of, of Belgian beer. Um, yeah, regional breweries are all you know have questionable futures. So I, I I don't know. I mean, a lot of them will hang in there and survive, and Belgian Belgium will will pivot. And you know, that that character I was talking about earlier about the kind of the finding ways to deal with shit like that's part of their national makeup and you know that's what they'll do but i think like anywhere else in the world it's it's gonna hurt and we're gonna see like the long-term effects of covid for a long time you know 10 a decade maybe a generation uh before you know we we see what happens um because you know obviously it has an impact on cafes and breweries distribution and export but it also has an impact on like you know, mental health and, you know, social interaction, which on which beer so, so relies, like how many people that have made a splash in the beer world by doing something amazing 
you know, have a series of social interactions before that, which have led to that moment and inspired them to do something. Oh, that's removed. So, you know, there's a kind of a base level now, which is a lot further behind what we would have had, had people been mixing and going to festivals and doing collaboration brews and meeting people and drinking beers. So, I mean, it's same with any country. We'll just have to wait and see what happens. I mean, the, the, the group that you refer to there, like I, I, I have this feeling that, you know, a lot of what you're recalling is kind of your emotional connection to probably your own beer experience, like of those guys all coming in together, tasting Belgium beer together, like that, that whole cohort were the first kind of brave new wave along with people like the dollar, um, you know, dollar saying, but like Strauss, for example, you know, they were mixing with all those gear, like Napa beer and the Molen. And, you know, I remember going to being lucky enough to, to attend, uh, a collaboration brew in 2014 or 15 of Black Damnation. And I think in the room, there were brewers from about seven or eight different countries, including like Logan Plant from Beavertown, who were a small London brewery at the time and who are now like a fucking massive brewery owned by Heineken. Um, you know, um, you know, there are people there from Magic Rock. There was people there from breweries in Spain, the Netherlands. And, you know, those are probably the portfolio of people that, you know, you saw coming in as well together. Um, I mean, those breweries are all still important in Belgium, but I think that was a kind of a first wave of of more op- like outward looking brewers in Belgium. And there's been a whole bunch of people since, like it's really changed, like uh, in the same way that America is unrecognizable since 2014 to 2021, like so much has happened compared to the previous seven years. Like Belgium is also pretty unrecognizable in terms of some of the main players in, in the scene for exciting beer. So um, not that those guys have been left behind, but they're definitely an older group in, you know, in, 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 in the cool bars and stuff around Belgium now. Um, so yeah, COVID, I don't know. Um, I mean, do you have any insight into how things are going to shake out after this? I mean, as far as like what we're seeing in the in the U.S., it's hard to say. Uh, even after vaccinations become more available and people, I, I guess the way I want to answer that is like when people say normal, they're referring to something that's probably not going to happen uh, again. The things that they, they were used to drinking may not be there. The things that they they were used to eating may not be there, and I think that we're going to really see the long-term effects of where things were heading in the States as far as breweries go in 2022, because all of the payroll protection and a lot of the stimulus that came in probably helped a lot of businesses that may have already been on the way out prior to. Um, And so I think that uh, definitely people that have been slow to adapt to packaging have been adversely affected. Um, and people that have been slow to move generally, but I will say that the real shakeout instead of happening, uh, in 2021, like I thought it would, it'll probably be next year when we see for the first time, the Brewers Association saying, Hey, there's actually going to be more closures than openings, uh, this year i think um 20 for 2021 there's still like a plus 500 or so on brewery openings yeah it's like fingernails people are still kind of hanging over the fingernails and the real yeah it's insane it's gonna happen Uh, next year yeah mm -hmm. but you know we've been like also at the same time 
you know, insiders and people that work on and off premise have been saying this for a while too. So we're beginning to all sound like broken records in a way too. And if you look at like uh, even something as small as like the pills, the lager revival that was supposed to happen in the US, you know, people that are committed to that have been saying it's been supposed to happen for five years uh, now. But regardless, I think that when the support dries up and the new market realities come about, that's when we'll kind of really see what happens. And it's it's going to stink because a lot of people that have held on for a very, very long time uh, and through adverse circumstances are going to probably realize this, this isn't worth it at a certain point. And they don't have the extra level of hey, my family's been doing this for a long time. Uh, you know, for a lot of people that have come into craft beer in the last five years, I feel as though there's a large number of them that are going to say, all right, on to the next thing now. I'm going to take my money and go somewhere else. But that sucks for the people that work there that may be committed to craft beer and to the consumers that have been committed to them. Oh, totally. It's tragic. Too. I mean, I, I don't think it's just breweries that, you know, there's, you know, brewing is hard and people work their fucking asses off and they care about what they're doing. And, and there's going to be a lot of people that are going to suffer and are suffering, but it's, it's not just breweries. It's like, there's a whole hospitality industry that relies on fucking amazing beer and care about it and are really good at what they do. And all those people are kind of stranded right now. And, you know, it's, it's almost as if your profession doesn't matter and, everyone's missing on uh, uh, social things that those people contribute in, in their, in their, in those jobs. Mm -hmm. And I just think, you know, it, it's not a particularly profitable industry for a lot of people. And like, I know there's a lot of Belgian cafes that, and breweries as well, that are just month to month, you know, making it happen and making it survive because it's their passion. And they're not worrying too much about extract and about time and, you know, in tank, they're worrying about the quality of the beer. And that's, you know, they're just about making things work financially. They're already struggling. And this COVID thing is just like, how long can we hang on? You know? Mm -hmm. So that's what, that's, that's what I'm scared about, I think. But yeah, it, it's going to be different, but you know, we, we just have to stay positive, I guess, and try and fight Mm -hmm. And, you know, everyone in their own personal situation, you know, whatever about the beer industry. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult time for everybody. And, you know, the longer we stay in this, the more difficult it becomes. Mm -hmm. you, you, make a, you make a really good point about the cafes and the bars and the kinds of, I, I, I was thinking recently about what have we been, I mean, we've been missing a lot of things in our lives, but what, sorts of anecdotes or information has the beverage industry kind of been missing over the last year. And that's really kind of the insights that the bars and cafes offer and the stewardship that those opportunities offer, the opportunities for people to try things and to experience these beverages in places that aren't at home. Those are massive uh, sales opportunities for breweries and uh, memory creation opportunities that uh, are going to make people loyal to brands for a long time in a way that 
buying something off the internet or going to a grocery store and picking something up where it's highly transactional and it's not, there's no displacement of emotion and there's no opportunity for someone who's enthusiastic to communicate something to someone. Like those are the things that this industry actually thrives on um, a lot more than the money says. Absolutely. I mean, we could go into a wider discussion here about the importance of, of these third spaces and, you know, I'm from Ireland. I mean, the Irish pub, I think, has a pretty, has a global reputation for, for its kind of social importance. And, you know, these are the places that we, you know, that we go, go after christenings or we, you know, go when somebody dies or there's places where we meet to celebrate something or it's the place where we watched Ray Houghton score against England in the 1988 European Championship. You know, th th these are the fucking the, this is the place where, you know, all this like the social capital is built up and, you know, those places are made better by fantastic beer. Um, but they're, they're in their own right, they're important. And, you know, I would cry if, uh, you know, a lot of pubs that I know from home were not able to survive this in Ireland. And there's a lot of cafes in Belgium that would be just like, you know, so sad if they didn't, weren't able to continue. Um, but I mean, there's, there's, there's so much shit to cry about. I'm, I'm not, you know, I try not to think about it too much. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Otherwise I'll go fucking crazy. Yeah. I, one of the, uh, one of the places you're kind of describing is motor Lambic in Brussels. And that's a place that has, uh, seemingly, uh, gotten together with Lambic info and there's a nice little campaign to support them. Um, and I know that you uh, you spoke with uh, one of the proprietors or with someone very involved in that organization early Jean, on. Jean Himmler, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's those people that are the are real sort of proponents of not just beer that's made independently, but of something a little bit different too of a way of thinking about not just food, not just beverage, but also food um, in a more critical and small way. Um, that's, that's something that like the on-premise really kind of offers in a way that it's just, it's hard to emulate that with grocery stores and in even just how people see things online. It's one of those things where you don't really kind of get it. So you, actually go to a restaurant that is interested in showing things in that way or going to like a, a, a bar and speaking with someone that has that level of kind of enthusiasm and conviction. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen, but we'll see. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm hopeful. Uh, I was supposed to go to Belgium in 2020 uh, after, after a music festival in Tilburg and I was going to go to Quintessence and I was going to do all these things and yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, I mean, unfortunately I, no, but that was a place I was uh, intending on visiting for, uh, for a lot of reasons, just because of what it offers and what kind of experience you can kind of have in a place like that, where there's all these beers and there's so many opportunities to taste things that, uh, are simply inaccessible here. 
Yeah, the, the contestants event is absolutely fantastic. If you get a chance to go to that, they'll actually re like cancelled again and rescheduled for, for the next time. So mm-hmm. um, I think that's normally every two years anyway, but mm-hmm. that's a really special event um, that, that you should definitely try to get to if you can, because it's, it's unlike any other festival. It's uh, it's really, really intimate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I will uh, hope that I can make it over in 2022 and that I can make all of it happen. Should we try the, the last one in the cycle here? That sounds like a fantastic idea. Did you ever think in your life you would see something like this, uh, a Dola beer coming out of a can? <laughs> oh, there's there's so many strange, um, like sort of Belgian side stories like that. That it's uh, that's the that's the anniversary beer, right, for Dola that was recently that was released recently. Yeah, I think yeah. Uh, they they must have sent over quite a bit or sent over continuous batches because. Uh, it's been a fridge stable here um, since autumn last year. I think that was the first time we could get it. Is that through the guys that, that are canning here in the States? Uh, canning there in the States? Yeah, so Be United. So they sent, they sent, Be United, yeah. They send it over. They do that with a number of breweries and they can because the Be United stuff you can get in cans in the States, but you can't find it in cans in Belgium. So everything mm-hmm. that the dollar releases in Belgium is bottle conditioned. Mm-hmm. And you can find... There are bottles that still come to the U.S., but the move has been to, uh, like, of course, like Still Knocked and some of the specialty products are still in bottles. But yeah, drinking Doltev and Ara beer and Or beer and uh, I hadn't, I mean, Exxon was, yes, Still Knocked being a bottle still, but uh, it's it's just kind of a nutty thing and. I was quite skeptical just because I wasn't really sure how the package conditioning would occur. Be United's done some to be uh, to be fair, has done some really phenomenal things with the container project. Um, you know, bringing uh, Hitachino over for a very long time. Uh, they had a Zimator project as well before OEC, uh, which is their brewery in Connecticut, and I think that's where they're packaging all this stuff. Um, they had a project where, uh, you know, con- uh, items were containered over from whether it was like their Austrian breweries or the Italian breweries or uh, Didola, and then aged uh, here in and blended uh, for super specialty releases. They were typically uh, draft only. Some of those were actually like some of the best beers I've ever had. Um, uh, it's yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting because like mm-hmm. on the on the on one on on this kind of the face of it, you, you would expect Belgian brewers never to give up such an important part of you know the kind of the consumer's experience. You know, mm-hmm. the the kind of packaging is just so important. It's like you know the risk for oxygen pickup, the carbonation level, the any refermentation that you might have in the bottle. All those things are like incredibly important to the final you know enjoyment of the product. And then here you have, the, you know, the B United are obviously doing a fantastic job because I've heard from a number of Belgian brewers that they're happy to do that. And, you know, Chris Hertelier of the Dolla is very particular. So he has obviously, you know, been in discussions with B United where they've offered assurances and he's seen what they've done. So I'm, I'm really happy to see that, you know, it's turned out well because, um, and it's funny because Belgian brewers were so 
we'll do everything in house and we don't want anyone to, you know, we, the, the only time, you know, we'll give it up is when we're pouring it into your decanter type thing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, now they're setting containers for, for packaging into cans, you know, and like mm-hmm. cans are just, you know, no one does cans here. You know, there are breweries starting, but they're usually small breweries who are very internationally influenced. And I think the, the general consumer in Belgium still sees cans as, you know, like a cheaper product. Mm-hmm. And, you know, have no idea on like the kind of positive quality, um, you know, attributes that a can can give a beer. So, you know, that's uh, that's something that I've seen every other country around Belgium do pivot to cans, especially in the last sort of 18 months, two years. Uh, like, I don't think in Ireland or the UK, for example, you can sell beer if it's not in a can anymore. Like no one wants glass. But in Belgium, yeah, you need, you know, 6.5 grams per litre of CO2 and you need, you know, the the bottle to put the label on. So, we'll, we'll you know, I'll see how how I'm I'm really interested to see how cans can because it's a, it's a kind of like a like a cultural invasion. You know, will they cave in? Will they do it because of like the marketing prowess of cans? Will they do it because um, you know cans are probably better for some beers that Belgians are brewing? You know, we'll, we'll see. Mm-hmm. It, it's a it's a crazy it's a crazy thing to think for the reasons you expressed that you have a brewery like Didola that is this mixture of all of this old equipment and everything is very analog and it's just. Oh yeah. It's like a uh, Bodolo cooler and like cool ship and he's got open fermentation and it's like, wow, what this place is wonderful. And like mm-hmm. when you see all that, you become, you know, for the first time you're like so skeptical about how the beers will taste. Mm-hmm. You think they're going to be ropey and raw but they're absolutely fantastic. And, you know, in conversations I've had with him, he's kind of rejected the idea of a collaboration. He's rejected the idea of, you know, brewing a style which is outside, you know, the wheel of his kind of um, like thoughts about beer. You know, so he'll never do like a hoppy, you know, like a hoppy hazy. He'll never do, you know, like he, he has a certain vision. And for someone like that to like send their beer in a container to to be united, that's kind of the interesting, you know, part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, exactly. And even the six point five percent too, it's lower in alcohol. I mean, it is a he's the you know in their marketing they say it's the first beer and it's but also something they haven't made for a long time too. But it it is unusual to see it in a can for sure. But it. It's also something that is very smart because that's reaching people in a way that the bottles have not before. It's getting shelf placements that it hasn't before. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why it's it, it is successful here, but it's uh, that's what I'm trying to tell you about, about about the Belgians. Like they're they're smart operators. You know, people don't. You know, they commercially they're smart operators and they know what they're doing. And a lot of it is dressed up in kind of. The stories of an 18th century wine chateau and like the, all the marketing mystery, but like they're 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 shrewd operators and they'll pivot and do what it takes to make things work. So, if Chris had to sees that sending a container of his XL PLL to be united for canning will have positive results without mm-hmm. negatively impacting on his the reputation of his brewery, then you know he's smart enough to do something like that. Yeah, it's uh, it's also just a fantastic uh lower strength beer of theirs that i can that i can enjoy sometimes that's what i'm looking for from 
uh, yeah, from a, a legacy Belgian producer that I would normally associate with uh, with stronger beers. And you're drinking the Zinna beer from De La Seine. Uh, how did you find, yeah, I love, love, uh, love De La Seine. Um, fortunately, harder to find here uh, as a result of uh, a lot of different things, but uh, hopefully someday we'll have an opportunity, uh, whether through a different port importer or not, to find uh, De La Seine here again. Uh, how did you find uh, De La Seine? I think you know, De La Seine are, you know, of the of the Seine. So in, in Flemish, the uh, Zena Brauerei, Seine is the river in Brussels. They are of Brussels. They, you know, have a huge identity connected to Brussels. I think like a huge proportion of what they sell stays, you know, stays in Brussels. And um, Yvon was a, a former social worker and, you know, uh, reflecting on our conversation about, you know, third spaces and pubs and cafes, he's a huge believer in the importance of those places. And he really wanted, you know, everybody from, you know, the old guy who normally just drinks his pincher there to the young guy looking for something more exciting to, you know, the, the, the family who, you know, has different generations and, you know, mothers and daughters and fathers and sons and everyone together. He, he, he really wants De La Seine to exist in that space. And, you know, he's, they've made a big effort to be in a lot of places in, Brussels bars, which maybe other breweries would ignore because it's too much hard work and they would go for the beer places, if you understand. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you go into a lot of Belgian uh, Brussels cafes, you'll find um, kind of the, the bigger commercial players who have like contracts or maybe, you know, a bit more muscle financially. And then you'll have, you know, Zena beer, you know, the, the beer of the Zena um, because they've tried to be that kind of, the Belgian ale on that small menu. Um, and that means that you can get it in, in quite a lot of places there. Now, COVID aside, I don't know what's going to happen there, but De La Seine are kind of the brewery which has sort of on the one hand embraced the new world and been adventurous in what they brew, but at the same time, never strayed from being a Belgian brewery, you know, and they have you know, a set of values, which I think a lot of people respect. And there's a, a quality to their beers, which identifies it as a, as a De La Seine beer, you know, in the way that kind of the malt is constructed, you know, there's this kind of, um, kind of water profile that they seem to have. Um, they, and most, you know, pretty much all their beers are on point and very much balanced. So, you know, there's a slight edging towards, you know, a, a, a like of like a herbaceous bitterness and, you know, they're big fans of certain noble hops and that all together over time kind of, you know, acquiesces into like a certain flavor that people can recognize over time. But I think it's like kind of their values that have endeared them to so much of the Belgian brewing world that, you know, the older guys and the family brewers and the Lambic brewers and like the Saison and Old Brown guys are all like, their beers are wonderful. And we like that they are rooted in Belgian tradition and respect that. And all the newer guys that want to brew IPAs and like do crazy experiments with beers and want to be more modern in their branding and want to kind of reach out to cafes where, you know, beer is like the main thing and, and, and it's cared about. 
they also identify with De La Seine because all those things are there in De La Seine as well. So they're, they're, they kind of have, have been this really strong, um, you know, kind of North Star for a lot of people across the, the Belgian brewing world. Um, Yvonne is also a very headstrong character. So, you know, I, I think there has been some tension there with a lot of people in, in the beer world. And I, we talked about the politics of Belgian brewing a bit earlier. But um, yeah, so so I mean, they're, they're this kind of, you know, I found them because they're available here in Belgium and especially if you're in Brussels, they're everywhere. But if you, you know, what I think about them is they, you know, they, they just have huge respect for, for from across the kind of the brewing world in Belgium and their beers are wonderful. Mm-hmm. People caught, uh, they caught on here as well because they were a Brussels brewery too. And that was at a time, I think, when there were, may have been what Cantillon and then uh, there was a period of no breweries in Brussels apart from Cantillon and De La Seine came about uh, before there's as I understand a number of new breweries and smaller breweries in Brussels. Oh yeah yeah Brussels is exploding like I think even in, even this year in COVID there's been like two or three new openings um, and you know you've had like people like Beer Project and L'Hermitage um, but like I think maybe seven, eight, nine breweries in, in Belgium now, whereas five years ago there was only two, six years ago there was only two. So like there's a big tran- transformation and that also goes with the whole cafe scene as well and, you know, where to drink and all the kind of rejuvenated neighborhoods that are now interested in beer. Mm-hmm. Now I'm not, I don't live in Brussels, but, you know, when I go there, I, I do connect with people that live there and it's, you know, it is it's certainly a, an exciting and, it's a strange, it's, it's a difficult place to, to navigate if you kind of don't know it because it's like Belgium. It's, it's, it's kind of a hodgepodge of like all different neighborhoods and cultures and languages. But, um, it, you know, it's the one city in Belgium, which is like so different to everywhere else in Belgium. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm just loving this beer. <laughs> yeah. The dollar, the dollar have, um, have really nice stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of the dollar. Arabian and Orbeer. Hmm. Hmm. I, I remember uh, any time I was able to get their beers and kegs, I would really, really try to because I thought even though we would always have carbonation issues with them on a short on the short draw, our system had uh, it was worth serving them just because of the the hop expressions that they had and um yeah, even though they were they were packaged. Uh, like it was at the beginning of the container project, uh, it was always just kind of something we didn't entirely understand as far as like how it was packaged, whether whether like whether they were where was the yeast coming from and under what specifications it was it was kind of uh, it was kind of confusing, but I found uh, some strong similarities between the bottled product and the keg product and. It was, despite the expense, always worth, uh, always worth serving. Yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, it's great. And like, <laughs> I'm always intrigued to see the, you know, the, like, uh, carbonation issues. You have that very regularly in in Belgian cafes with Belgian kegs because you know they, they like to push it to the, to the limit. And and a lot of the yeasts that they use are mo- maybe more, less stable, let's say, than some of the kind of American ale yeasts that are being used in like a lot of the beers I think in North America 
Um, so yeah, I mean, that's not an excuse on behalf of the brewer at all, but it, it can get interesting in a lot of Belgian cafes and they just like, it's part of normal life, just dealing with overcarbonated kegs. Mm. Oh man. Well, uh, me of 2012 is a little more reassured with that information now. Um, but we, we saw things that were similar from Jolly Pumpkin as well. And a lot of producers that were doing mixed fermentation beers, uh, was that product would often be packaged green and sent to us and there would, we would find re-fermentation activity occurring in the package or in the, in the keg. And so we would, especially if you had like a short draw, there would just be a very, well, we're in the weeds now, uh, like a very, not a lot of space for the pressure to, uh, to disperse. And so you'd end up with a lot of carbonation issues. Well, yeah, I mean, you're just pouring, you're just pouring foam basically, but mm-hmm. a bigger problem there is because you can always, you know, either, you know, apply a different level of, of pressure if that's possible or release some pressure from the keg potentially, which is not ideal. And, you know, the producer should not, ha- that should not be the case. But a bigger issue is if there's a refermentation in the keg at a, at, at, and then it's, you know, it doesn't have the opportunity to get rid of like the diacetyl or the kind of the fermentation compounds, which can lead to, you know, unpleasant flavors in, in the beer that were not intended by the producer. And, you know, for the bar p- person that's pouring that, that's an issue because you're not pouring a good beer. And, and, you know, it, it doesn't have the chance to re-ferment and eat up all those other kind of compounds. So like, yeah, I mean, this, like, <laughs> this is just something in Belgium that everyone is very familiar with. Like if any keg <laughs> comes with the word saison on the side, there's, there's very often a discussion between either the, the, the distribution partner and the, and the bar owner or the brewer and the bar owner, just in terms of like, oh yeah, we know exactly what happened with that batch and let me tell you how to pour it type thing, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but that's, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure, you know, I think a lot of American bar owners are highly educated and, you know, understand that, but uh, that that's not to make an excuse for the brewer because, you know, you should be delivering a stable package, but when dealing with expressive yeast, that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. And definitely. if you're not, if you're not, if you're not pasteurizing as well, you know, you, you can't, you can't always be sure, but you know, it, it doesn't happen a lot, but the, the, there are moments. Mm-hmm. What are, uh, what are some things that you're working on now? What, what are you writing about? What's interesting uh, for you, whether in the world of Belgium, you also write about the Irish beer world too. What are some things that are interesting for you uh, now that you're uh, writing about? Yeah, I'm, do, I'm doing a bunch of stuff right now. So I'm, I'm doing a couple of big themes with Belgian Smack right now. One is on regionality. So like um, looking at different regions of Belgium and how like the beer that's developed there, you know, has developed and why it's developed like that and why it's different from other places. And that's like a look at the, the region, its people and, you know, it's kind of beer and food culture. And you get some fucking really weird stories there with brilliant plot points and like lots of real you know, kind of engaging narrative. Um, another one is like the relationship between war and beer, because, you know, Belgium has been kind of very, very tragically affected by war in its history because of its location. And like in, like in World War One, for example, like the a very small geographical region of Belgium where it's where most of the fighting took place in the whole war. 
and you had people from, you know, Canada, New Zealand, all, you know, people from all around, they're going to Belgium to fight, die, like so far from home, you know, in the early 1900s. And that has had an impact on beer culture. And then obviously I'm doing some things around food as well. I'm working for a couple of other magazines right now. One uh, um, American magazine, Craft Beer and Brewing, I've done some stuff with. Um, the editor there is, is a guy who used to live in Belgium and is, you know, really educated on 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 brewing here and, and beer culture here, Joe, Joe Stang. And uh, working for a UK magazine, Ferment, on a couple of stories about Belgian yeast and Belgian regionality. Um, and yeah, I try and also do some like podcast stuff, uh, interesting interviews with people. Um, so I've got, I've got a couple other things in the pipeline. Um, I'm, I'm kind of going to do some more kind of photographic work, uh, on, on a lot of the people on the periphery of Belgian beer and telling their stories. Um, and yeah, so, so it's, it's, it's busy and, and interesting. Are you, uh, are you still looking at the Irish beer world too? And you, you wrote some pretty, uh, in my opinion, fantastic pieces on uh, different small breweries in, in Ireland. I think you, one of them even uh, won an award from, I think it was, was it the North American Guild of Beer Writers that you won an award for? Uh, is the Irish beer scene something that you are still interested in? And how do you look back on that now that you spent so much time in Belgium? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question because I feel comfortable talking about Belgian beer, as you can probably tell. Like, I, you know, I live here and I know a lot of people and I kind of have a feel for it. And I don't live in Ireland, but sort of conversely, I know more about Irish psyche and how Irish people operate. And, you know, our, you know, the, the things that we should be celebrating and the things that we shouldn't be proud of, you know, the kind of the... Uh, you know, in, in an Irish character, you know, and the, I think maybe, maybe it's because the longer I'm away from home, the more I kind of yearn to connect and like doing, you know, in-depth interviews and traveling around to, to visit those breweries and talk to people is part of that. And, you know, re-engaging with people that are more similar to me, I guess, than, than Belgians are. And it's very, very different actually reporting on a story because in Belgium, I'm, I'm an outsider and I feel very comfortable just asking questions and challenging viewpoints and finding out information that, you know, a lot of English speakers probably don't know. Whereas in Ireland, I'm kind of one of them. And it's like, you know, it's like an American beer writer going to an American brewery. It's, 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 it's a different dynamic. So um, my, my, Focus on, on the Irish stories is, I think, first of all, I've been asked to write about Ireland because I think there is some interest now. I don't know in America, maybe in America with, you know, so many people in beer and also a lot of Irish Americans, but in the UK as well, because it's so close and, you know, Ireland is a very fast changing beer nation as well. So um, I guess I've been asked to do that and, and I've kind of said yes, because I've been interested to kind of, maybe reconnect. And a lot of that is on human stories. So like the, the, the one of the story you mentioned, which I, which I won an award for was about um, a woman in West Kerry, which is a very beautiful remote part in the Southwest of Ireland on the Atlantic coast. Um, you know, it's like kind of where they filmed star Wars. It's um, just, you know, incredibly beautiful and epic, but it's fucking hard living. And in the winter it's really remote. 
and this woman um, was an artist and she married a guy who had a pub down there and they went on holidays and, and her partner drowned. And, um, you know, they had all sorts of tragedy in their life and previously they had lost a child. And when I met this woman, you know, she was just so inspiring. She came back to Ireland after this terrible news and, you know, the, the pub was kind of failing and it was in a remote part of Ireland and, you know, instead of kind of giving up and going, moving somewhere else, like back to the city or back to Dublin, she decided to do the thing that would maybe make the pub survive and the legacy of her husband live on, which was like basically make beer that she could sell in the pub that was her own. So she started this small brewery and like the, the story was just full of all these kind of progressive complications and things that she had to overcome. And yeah, okay, the story is about beer and it's about brewing and all the people she met along the way. And it's about that part of Ireland and what those fucking people are like. But it's also a story that anyone who has been through a challenging time in their life can kind of take inspiration from. And, you know, that's again what I was talking about earlier was like, I want people to read that and say, fuck, if she can do that and fight, keep fighting and all these, all this shit happens to her and still create her art, like as well as make beer and you know be true to who she is as a person i know maybe she's not 100 percent happy and maybe not everything is the way she wants it to be but you know if you can create that nuance and you know she was she opened up you know she she opened was open to me when she was discussing this with me and i knew it was a sensitive story so like you know there's another two big stories i'm working on right now about irish beer which will hopefully be released in the next month or two um and, you know, I've done a lot of reporting on those and those are kind of equally, you know, they're quite emotive and they tell a story about Ireland as much as they do about Irish beer. So, yeah, I guess that's kind of, I don't really want to start writing about beer in other countries, but because, you know, I'm Irish, that, that's probably always going to be a part of my, my you know, wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Do you feel as though because you carry sort of an international perspective in some way that, uh, a lot of people are looking for you to write about beer in other places. Well, I don't know. I think there's enough people out there that are good that, you know, they can, a- you, you can ask people to write in other countries. I mean, obviously I would like it that they like my approach and the way I, I write that they would ask me, but you know, I think it's a, it's a, it's, it's, there's a lot of people out there doing good work and, you know, I, I can stick to my own, my own thing. And that's, you know, that's no problem. Brendan, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us at heavy hops. We enjoyed the conversation so much. And, uh, do you have any kind of last words before we part? Um, well, I guess what I'll say is the thing that I say at the end of all my podcasts, which is, um, love what you do. And that is basically just like, you know, I've, fi- I've been lucky enough to find something that I enjoy doing, which is, you know, learning more about Belgian beer, learning more about beer, learning more about Belgian people um, and, you know, all the kind of the writing and the editing and the photography and, and the podcasting stuff. So, you know, I've been through a bunch of careers in the past and, you know, I've, everyone I encounter has struggled to do the thing that they love to do. All the brewers that are, you know, tr- striving to achieve the, the, those those things. So that's the thing I just said to people is like, just try your best to no matter how long it takes or what you have to do, just find the thing that you really want to do and do it so that you can love what you do. Awesome. Love what you do. That's the greatest, uh, great slogan. So thank you. And uh, 
thanks for joining us. And uh, for listeners, you'll be able, we'll put some links into some of your stories that we discussed. And um, thanks for joining us, Brendan. Thank you. Yeah.